Beloved, in the year of our Lord, 353, Julian I, who was a bishop of Rome, decreed that December 25th should be celebrated as the birth of Jesus Christ. In 1832, Professor Charles Fallon of Harvard University, when Harvard was actually a university with real professors, brought from his home country of Germany a tradition and we read or are told by historians lit the first Christmas tree in America. That was almost two centuries ago. A lot has transpired since then, even further back to 353, and then even further back some 2,000 years ago to that dark night that was brightened by a special star that announced the birth of our Lord Jesus. What we're going to do this morning is we're going to have a brief panoramic view of the Christmas story, which is really the Christmas account from the pages of Scripture. God marked out his eternal plan of redemption, and at the center of it are at least two events, if not more, certainly the cradle of Jesus and the cross of Jesus. And we'll spend most of our time in some different passages in the New Testament. But to begin, I want to read from the book of Isaiah, chapter 7, 14, chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, and then a few opening verses from Isaiah chapter 40. Because while we're on this side of the cross, while we're on this side of the full revelation of the God-man Jesus Christ, this is nothing new. This is something that God promised all the way back, even through the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah 7, verse 14, the prophet says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. A couple chapters over, chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, A child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. And then Isaiah chapter 40, uh, the first uh, brief outline of Isaiah The first 39 chapters of Isaiah you could look at as God's chastening of the nation of Israel. In chapters 40 through 66, you could understand as God's comfort of the nation of Israel. And that's how he opens it up in the first five verses where we read this. Isaiah 40 and verse 1. Comfort, O comfort my people, says your God. Speak kindly to Jerusalem and call out to her that her warfare has ended, that her iniquity has been removed that she has received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice is calling, clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Let every valley be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. And let the rough ground become a plain and the rugged terrain a broad valley. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all flesh will see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And beloved, this is the word of the living God that has been read in your hearing. Please attend to it as such. That is the promise. That is the prophecy of what is coming. And as we take a look at this brief panoramic view of the Christmas story, we'll look at four chapters. A son 
a substitute, a savior, and a shepherd. We'll spend most of our time in the first two chapters, but the main thrust here is we want to make sure that when we think of Christmas, when we think of the wonder of the sovereign creator God of the universe being born as a baby, we understand what it means and why it matters. So the first chapter is a son. Now as we would consider this, we should understand that God reveals himself in his transcendence and his imminence. These are big theological words. What this means is God reveals himself to his creation in his inequality from us and his intimacy with us. And these two attributes, these two perfections of God are captured somewhat in these two twin titles of Jesus, both of which have to do with son. He is the son of God and he is the son of man. He is the son of God. The second member of the Trinity has always been the divine son. At the same time, there was a special day when he became a human son. And this is, again, the Christmas story. This is the gospel. Uh, Gabriel told young virgin Mary in Luke chapter 1, verse 35, Gabriel told sweet, godly Mary, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the holy offspring shall be called the Son of God. So Mary was a virgin. This was a fulfillment of the promise that we opened up with just a moment ago from Isaiah chapter 7, 14. This is a miracle. This is conception without insemination. This is conception without union. From one standpoint, we would understand that Mary contributed the X chromosome. The Y chromosome was supernaturally created by God so that the baby was born. He was born son of God, son of man. He is, was, and always has been and always will be God. And at the incarnation, he was from that point forward also man. 100% God and 100% man. So this sweet virgin gave birth, but it was a natural birth. It's the conception that was miraculous. It's the conception that was supernatural. So we rightly defend and maintain the virgin birth, but if we want to uh, bring our thinking up just a little bit, if we were to think of the virgin conception, that would be a better capturing of the wonder that's taking place here. Beloved, the point here is the Son of God came from preexistence and glory in order to be despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He came to be a root out of a dry ground. He came fully aware that he would have no place to lay his head. Two thoughts from the Old Testament, one from Jesus' lips himself. He who was the Son of God, who was eternally rich, made himself poor for his glory, and for our eternal blessing. He is the Son of God. He is also the Son of Man. And this is the title, this is the name, the designation that Jesus uses more than any other for himself. Uh, The Son of Man, it does bring out his deity to be sure, but it has more of an accent and weight towards his humanity. It blends his humility with his glory. The Son of Man reflects the common humanity and the shared solidarity that he has with his children, with his daughters and sons. And we're introduced to the glory of the Son of Man first 
back in Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, where Daniel has this vision where he sees the Son of Man coming to the Ancient of Days. He sees the second member of the Trinity coming before the first member of the Trinity. This is what Daniel says. Behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a Son of Man was coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. So that introduces us to the glory of the Son of Man. Jesus introduces us to the humility of the Son of Man. In Matthew 8, verse 20, there he said, The foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. You see, as a man, he lived in humility just as he was born in humility in a stable and laid in a manger, even as we read in our public reading of Scripture earlier in the service. Back in Luke 2, 12, the angel said to the godly shepherds, this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. The king of the universe, beloved, the king of the universe, dear friend, was born in a stable and laid in a manger, laid in a feeding trough, a little wooden box where they would put hay for cows or horses to eat out of. The shepherds and magi that would come to him found him wrapped in cloths just like any other baby. There was no distinguishing mark other than the fact, the identifying mark that he would be laid in a feeding trough. So the humility and the humanity of the entry of the king of the universe into this present misery is staggering. He landed on this enemy-occupied planet in the form of a baby. There were no royal robes. There were no fancy clothing. He brought his glory down into the dust of the earth in humility, again, for his ultimate glory and for our eternal joy. And beloved, dear friend, when he entered this world, he laid aside his garb of heaven. And even the poverty of the feeding trough suits the shame of the cross. So from the cradle to the cross, bring together in one seamless message the humility of the first coming of Christ. The humiliation of the second person of the Trinity to be born as a man, to live as a man, and then eventually to die as a man. He is the son of man. Now, before we leave this topic of his humanity, there are two essential elements of his humanity that are tied directly into the Christmas story, tied directly into the work of Christ. Namely, he learned and he suffered. He learned. In other words, when he was a toddler, uh, he likely, surely, probably touched something he shouldn't touch. But once he was corrected, he never touched it again. Uh, I don't think we're saying it here, but sometimes you might sing a song that as a baby he didn't cry or something like that. Well, of course, he, he probably, he cried when he was hungry. Now, he didn't cry in any sinful way whatsoever, but little baby Jesus had to communicate to Mary that he was hungry. So he learned as a baby, he learned as a toddler. When he was 12 years old in the temple, back at the end of Luke chapter 2, you remember, or you may remember, but Mary and Joseph were in Jerusalem. They left Jerusalem. Both were separate from each other in this large caravan. Both Mary and Joseph thought Jesus was with the other. They traveled a day out and realized that Jesus wasn't with them. So then they traveled a day back and then took a whole another day searching around Ju- Jerusalem before they finally found 12-year-old boy Jesus in the temple. And this is what Luke tells us, chapter 2, verse 46, that he was sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. 
And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. So, beloved, the point there is, first, boy, Jesus listened. Then, boy, Jesus asked. Then, boy, Jesus answered. So he was first a learner. His answers followed. So whether it was Jesus as a baby, Jesus as a toddler, Jesus as a 12-year-old, and then certainly Jesus as a man, in his humanity, his thinking was never clouded with darkness. He didn't have the slightest shred of original sin. Even this 12-year-old Jesus in Luke 2, he had loved in his humanity, in his full 100% humanity, he had loved the Lord his God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength every nanosecond of his then 12 years of existence. So he learned. And even as a man, his learning continued. He, when he was a man, Jesus fell asleep when he was tired. He had to eat and drink to refuel, just as any other man. And his learning continued. Hebrews 5, verse 8, you'll read these words. Although he was a son, he learned obedience. So his learning continued. Now, what does it mean that he learned obedience? It does not mean that he moved from a state of disobedience to a state of obedience. What it means is he moved from a state of being untested and unproven to being tested and proven. It also means that he satisfied the requirements for perfect obedience that God has set for all of us. So he learned and he suffered. He suffered. You see, the way of humility is not the way of the world. He lived his life in what we call this present misery. You and I live in what Jeremiah calls this present misery. And suffering is part of life. It is part of life for any man or woman. And it was part of God's good plan for Jesus. Uh, verse 8 of Hebrews 5 continues. He learned obedience from the things which he suffered. Now, when we think of the suffering of Jesus, we would probably first go to the cross, to Golgotha. To be sure, when it's talking about his suffering, it would include that. But beloved, he, his intense suffering didn't begin at the cross. He lived in this sinful world. He was tempted as you or I are tempted. And in fact, his temptation was unimaginably higher and more intense than any temptation you and I could face. If you think about temptation, if a person is tempted and he immediately gives in, it was just a little light temptation. But if by God's grace and mercy one resists that temptation, the temptation grows stronger, and by it we grow stronger as we resist that. Jesus never once gave in to any temptation. So his temptation was as you and I are tempted, but infinitely worse. He was tempted as we are tempted, yet without sin. Beloved, dear friend, Lord Jesus knew the sorrows and sadness of life. He knew the betrayal of a friend. He knew the pain of bereavement. He knew misunderstanding, rejection, and false accusation. He knew terrible, or he would know, terrible physical pain at the cross, and he certainly knew unimaginable spiritual agony, especially on the cross. In the very same way when we think of his learning and we think of his suffering, in the same way, very much the same way, gold is put into the crucible and melted down with white-hot heat to reveal its natural purity. So also, the gold of Jesus' natural purity was put into the crucible and melted down with the white-hot pain so that he learned from experience what suffering is and he proved his purity would persevere. 
So the Son of Man learned and the Son of Man suffered. And I would say this, in his humanity and in his uh, humility, never on earth or in heaven was a being more approachable than Christ. When he was a baby, there were no armed guards to push people away from coming to him. Even as a man, he had no armed guards. Even when his disciples tried to shoo away children or put people away, Jesus would welcome them to himself. And we can think of the shepherds, uh, the shepherds that had the appearance and the announcement from the angel and then the incredible testimony of multitude of angels across the hills and valleys that these shepherds, the shepherd in the ancient Near East was one of the lowest and least regarded of all professions. And when you think of the shepherds approaching the king of kings, many would tremble approaching a throne. When you think to approach a throne, You need to show the guard your invitation. You need to be instructed in royal protocol. You need to be told what to wear, how to act, what to say and what not to say, where to stand. But who trembles when approaching a dirty feeding trough? And these dear godly shepherds approached the feeding trough. They didn't have an invitation. There was no instruction in protocol. They came in their dirty shepherd's clothes. Dear friend, the Son of God, the Son of Man is freely accessible. His door is always open, and there's always room for another. That is part of the gospel message. That is part of the Christmas story. So he is a son. The second chapter in our brief account is a substitute. You see, Jesus hit the mark. He hit the center of the target where we cannot. He met the standard of perfect obedience of a sinless life where you and I fall infinitely short. He was born to be our substitute. He was born to be our substitute through two things, through his submission of self and through his sacrifice of self. His submission of self, as part of his submission of his divine self, he both put off and he put on. He became what he was not without ever ceasing to be what he always was. And the Apostle Paul captures this well for us in Philippians chapter 2, in verses 6 and 7. There the Apostle Paul writes this, Although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. So again, make sure we understand, he was, is, and always will be God. He never ceased to be God. He didn't lose his nature as God. God, But in his incarnation, he took on a second nature, one person with two natures, a divine nature and a human nature, 100% God, 100% man. So what did he put off? What did he lay aside? He laid aside his heavenly glory. He laid aside his independent authority, his divine prerogatives, his eternal riches, and in one sense, his perfect communion with God the Father. Beloved, when Jesus Christ was born as a baby and grew up, he who created everything and owns everything forsook everything for his glory, for your eternal blessing. We could say it this way. He gave up the glory of angels for the spittle of men. That is part of the humiliation. So he he emptied himself by putting off, by laying aside, but also he emptied himself by taking up and putting on in Verse 7 of Philippians 2, Paul continues, taking the form of a bondservant, literally taking the form of a slave. A slave owns nothing, 
A slave doesn't even own the clothes on his back. A slave carries the burdens for other men. So the only person, the only man, the only human being that had a right to everything wound up with nothing and became a slave. Paul continues, and being made in the likeness of men. And the point here is he became a man, fully a man, both inwardly and outwardly, with everything this entails. The pressures, the longings, the needs, the weaknesses, the sufferings, the disappointments, the temptations. He became fully man, again, with everything this entails, except for sin, completely without sin. Very often people might say, well, to err is human, or to sin is human. Well, to err or to sin is fallen human, but it is not what man should be. We shouldn't think of the standard for man, the standard for humanity as fallen man. We should think of the standard of humanity as Jesus Christ. So he did experience everything about humanity, again, except for sin. He did not experience sin itself. He never felt the experiences of sin, but he felt the effects of sin in a way that is far greater, far more grievous, far more intensely agonizing than you and I ever could. The creator took on the form of the created. The infinite took on the form of the finite. The rich became poor. That's why Paul said to the church in Corinth, 2 Corinthians 8 9, though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. That is part of the substitution that is part of God's eternal plan and part of the grace and goodness of the gospel message. He carried the supreme burden, the burden that no other man or woman, for that matter, could carry, the burden of the sin of the world. Paul continues, and being found in appearance as a man. So he, at the incarnation, he has two substances, God and man, but his appearance is just a man. No one looked at this man and said, that is God in human form. Only those who had eyes of faith and ears to hear based on the testimony, based on the teaching, based on the word, based on the understanding of the good promises of God, which would never fail without accomplishing what he purposed, would anyone understand this? This is why in Isaiah's suffering servant chapter, Isaiah chapter 53, the prophet wrote this. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. Beloved, the, the point here is, he didn't receive what he deserved in his earthly lifetime so that we might receive what we don't deserve in our heavenly lifetime. He did not receive what he deserved in his earthly lifetime so that you and I might receive what we don't deserve in our heavenly lifetime. That is the plan of God. That is part of what is the picture and the meaning behind the little cradle that we celebrate at Christmas. And then he had a submission of self. Second, it was through his sacrifice of self. And this is key to him being our substitute. As our substitute, as I said before, he brought his glory down to earth. And as our substitute, he brought his glory down to the dust of death. And we can ask the question, since 
a purpose, since a primary purpose of the incarnation of Jesus is to be our substitute and to take the punishment we deserve, why didn't he just come as a man on a Thursday, uh, get crucified on a Friday, and then rise from the grave on a Sunday? Why did he have to be born as a baby, grow up and live into adulthood? Uh, Paul gives the answer as we continue our brief journey in Philippians 2, verse 8. He humbled himself by becoming obedient. You see, the first Adam, Adam in the Garden of Eden, couldn't obey one single simple command to not eat the fruit from one tree that was in the garden. One tree in the paradise of Eden. The last Adam displayed costly obedience, perfect obedience, year after year in the wilderness of the world by becoming obedient. From Bethlehem to Golgotha, he hit the mark of perfect sinless obedience all the time. And this dynamic of the first Adam and the second Adam, Paul captures this in 1 Corinthians 15. Paul there writes, the context is the resurrection, but it ties into the whole element of substitution, of Jesus hitting the mark and the standard that we can't. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 21, since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also all in Christ will be made alive. You see, by the disobedience of the first Adam, all are born sinners. By the obedience of the last Adam, many are made righteous. And beloved, in Christ, mark this, you are clothed with the unfailing obedience of the Son of God as he progressed from the cradle to the cross in his whole perfectly obedient life. And his obedient humiliation led to his vicarious substitution. And this is the real crux of the matter when we think of him as our substitute and even as our Savior. From birth to death, from the womb to the tomb, he drank the cup of darkness so that we may drink the cup of eternal light. And that's why Paul finishes Philippians 2, verse 8, to the point of death, even death on the cross. You see, we have the forgiveness of sin because the Son of God came to earth, was born as a man, lived as a man, and died as a man as our substitute to pay the price for our sin. What, as the hymn says, what wondrous love is this, that a father would give his only begotten son, the Son of God, the Son of Man. And to wrap up this idea of substitution, God treated Jesus on the cross, as though he lived my sinful, wicked life, even though he didn't. So that when God looks at me, he sees me as though I lived the perfect, sinless, obedient life of Christ, even though I didn't. That is the gospel message. That is the Christmas story. So he's a son. He's a substitute. The third chapter in our brief narrative is a savior. And this is, of course, the very heart of the Christmas message is a promise of salvation. That's why as we had our public reading earlier from Luke chapter 2 verses 10 and 11, the angel said to the shepherds when they were shocked and amazed by the glory of one angel, let alone what happens in verses 13 and 14 when there's a multitude of angels, the one angel says, do not be afraid for behold I bring you good news of great joy which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. 
Gabriel, when he appeared to Joseph, to tell Joseph, don't be afraid of taking godly Mary as your wife. She is with child, but that which has come upon her is of the Lord. She is a godly righteous woman. She remains a virgin. And Gabriel tells Joseph what he is to name Jesus and why he is to name Jesus. This is what he says, Matthew 1.21. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for it is he who will save his people from their sins. Beloved, he is dear friend. He is Savior. And that one phrase back in Luke chapter 2, this is for the Jews, or this is for the Gentiles. This is for the well-heeled. No, this is for all the peoples, which shall be for all the people. This is good news of a great joy for the outcasts, the lowlifes, the tax collectors, nobody's prostitutes, for the drunkards and the sinners. The good news is for all nationalities, all ethnicities, all ages, and both genders. Beloved, dear friend, the maker of man became man, that he, the bread, might hunger, that he, the fountain, might thirst, that he, the truth, might be accused by false witness, that he, justice, might be condemned by the unjust. And that is part of what it means for him to be our Savior. And this salvation is certainly primarily for the release and the forgiveness of our sin, but it doesn't stop there. It's complete deliverance from even bondage of the devil. Hebrews 2 Verses 14 and 15, the author there says, Since then the children share in flesh and blood. He himself likewise also partook of the same. That's his birth. That's the beginning in the cradle. So that through death he might render powerless. So it takes him from the cradle to the cross. So that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and might deliver those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. Beloved, dear friend, in Christ we are delivered out of the miserable dungeon of bondage into the magnificent palace of freedom. We are taken from being a slave to sin to being a slave of Christ. And the slavery in Christ is the only place where there is true freedom, where there is true emancipation, where there is true joy, and where there is true peace. Jesus was born bloody and wriggling, in a wooden manger. In his life, he befriended wretched prostitutes and respectable teachers. He rubbed shoulders with lowly fishermen and lofty rulers. He showed his love to helpless widows and powerful officers. He knew hunger as well as feasting. He knew laughter as well as grief. He knew loneliness and betrayal and rejection and pain. You see, he came, he came to suffer the pangs of hell in order to be our Savior, in order to be your Savior. If you would turn from yourself, turn from your sin, and turn to Christ, and ask him to be your Savior, ask him to be your Lord. He said anyone who comes to him, he would receive to himself, would make you a new creature in Christ Jesus, where old things have passed away and new things have come. So he is our son, he is our substitute, he is our savior. The fourth and final chapter, he is a shepherd, he is our shepherd. Now I'm told I really don't have any kind of farming background, but I'm told, and I'm pretty confident about this, that there are few, if any, animals that are as dependent as sheep. 
They can't feed themselves. They can't protect themselves. Somebody has to clean them. Somebody has to feed them. Somebody has to protect them. Somebody has to lead them. Without a shepherd, sheep wander, they become lost, and they're very likely to be eaten by wolves, and they'll starve without a shepherd to graze them. That's why Jesus brings out this imagery when we are told by Mark that he, Jesus, felt compassion for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Or his statement in John 10, 11, which is perhaps the greatest single verse capturing this great doctrinal truth, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Beloved, this is what the gospel message is all about. This means that he guides us and he guards us. And this is not something new. This, most of what we've talked about here is in the New Testament on this side of the cross. But even in the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant, this imagery of God as shepherd for his people is captured in many places, including Ezekiel chapter 34, verses 11 and 12, where God is speaking to the nation of Israel and says, Behold, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out. As a shepherd cares for his herd in the day when he's among the scattered sheep, so I will care for my sheep and will deliver them from all the places to which they were scattered on a cloudy and gloomy day. So, beloved, we need a Savior to save the sinful. We need a Savior to deliver the dying. And we need a shepherd to help the hurting. To be sure the shepherd that Jesus is leads us from the way of darkness, the way of death, the way of eternal destruction into the way of eternal light and eternal presence with God. And even on this side of eternity, he is our shepherd in real and practical ways. When you're lonely, God meets you and comforts you. When you're discouraged, he lifts you up. He comes to you in your sadness, in your emptiness, and in your dryness as your great shepherd, as your chief shepherd, as your loving shepherd and guardian of your soul. When our soul, when our soul grows sorrowful, he revives it. When it's sinful, he sanctifies it. When our soul is weak, he strengthens it. And beloved, your shepherd takes you day by day, moment by moment, through the veil into the very presence of God. And on that dark and cloudy day from an earthly perspective, he will take you all the way through even the valley of the shadow of death into the eternally green pastures of his house where you will dwell forever in Christ. Because he is a son, he is a substitute. He's your substitute, he's your savior, and he is your shepherd. In conclusion, I want to talk about two twin fruits of the incarnation. When we think about this Christmas season, I want to leave you with the thought of the two twin fruits or two twin fruits of the incarnation, joy and peace. And I'll go back, sorry, one more time to Luke chapter 2. In verse 10, the angel said, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of a great joy, which shall be for all the people. The multitude of angels in verse 14 said, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among men with whom he is pleased. Joy and peace are twin fruits of the incarnation. Joy is peace dancing. Peace is joy resting. That is part of the blessing. That is part of the gift of salvation, of new life in Christ Jesus. As we said, it's really only with eyes of faith 
Historically speaking, when we think of this, that someone would go to a stable, look at a helpless baby in a dirty, dusty feeding trough and say, here is the king of kings. Here is the Lord of lords. Here is the creator of the cosmos. Here is the promised one, the Messiah. In the same way, dear friend, it's only with eyes of faith and ears to hear that someone would look at a man crucified on a cross and say, here is my savior. Here is my Messiah. Here is my Lord. And dear friend, in his life, the man Jesus, the hem of his garment was always within reach. His hand was always willing and ready to reach out to those who would grasp for it. And now his ear is always open to your cry. Since he was born in a place freely accessible to all who were led to it, invited to it, led to it, came to it, needed it, realized they needed it, and wanted it. And since God has not shut you out of the stable, dear friend, don't shut yourself out. The door is open and there is room for another. Please join me, beloved, as we go to the Lord in prayer. Lord God, we praise you and thank you. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your eternal plan. We thank you for your birth. We thank you for your life. We thank you for your death. We thank you for your victory over the grave. We thank you, Lord, for all that you're doing. We pray, Lord, that you would be glorified in our midst at Santan Bible Church, the men and women that are here. And Lord, for anyone that is here, maybe a visitor, maybe a friend or a family member, if there's anyone here, or those who are here that aren't trusting in you alone by faith alone, Lord, draw them to yourself. Let them come to you and receive the free gift of salvation and the newness of life and the joy and the peace that reigns and dominates in our life, even as we are struggling and stumbling and bumbling on the side of eternity. It is for your glory of your honor, Lord Jesus, that we pray, that we sing, that we do all these things. Amen.